you'll find your place uh, in your Bible at Psalm 100. By the way, we're going to have some of our young people through the summer to come and sing like Nathan just did, not necessarily Psalm 100. <laughs> uh, but they're going to come and they're going to sing for us. Won't that be great? It'd be cool. Had some of our young people here. Uh, they don't get to sing. It's sort of scary on Sunday mornings by yourself, but they're going to come sing for us some on uh, Sunday evenings. They won't be every Sunday night, but that'll be some Sunday evenings. In just a little bit, we're going to be looking at Psalm 100, but I want to go back and just sort of give you an overview picture of the book of Psalms. And let me say this before I get to that. Uh, I have more Psalms given to me than we have weeks to study the Psalms. And so if, if I don't get to, we don't get to your Psalm specifically, uh, p- please be patient with us. We will ultimately, I'll keep that in my, my, my bank of memory, which is on my computer. And um, we will keep that in my bank of memory, and periodically we'll come back and we'll study a psalm and pick them up, pick up the ones that we don't get to. Some of you turned in the same psalms. We had several people wanted Psalm 91. Uh, we had somebody who wanted Psalm 119. Um, so um, I think, did you turn that one in again? Psalm 119? You, you want to tell them how many verses are in Psalm 119? Yeah, there you go. 176. Wait, wait a minute. Did you hear that? She said she was wrong last time. Trust me, when it comes to numbers, if she's wrong, that is rare, very rare. But I had it really wrong. I had it 165 because 165 was one of my favorite verses in Psalm 119. That was a good out, wasn't it? All right. So we're to the book of Psalms. We're going to be studying and talking about the book of Psalms over these next uh, 12 weeks. There's 150 poems that comprise the book of Psalms and their heartfelt prayers that help us articulate our own thoughts and our own feelings to God. Uh, The Psalms were also set to music and they were sung by the people of God during worship. We, We don't have the Uh, music that goes with them, the notes, the rhythm that goes with it. But we have the words of these songs, and they obviously knew them. It was one of the ways that uh, they were able to remember them uh, so well. The Psalms were written over a period of about a 1,000 years. The largest single group of Psalms are identified in their titles as composed by David. So think about that. And David was about 1,000 B.C., as you're thinking about David. So the largest group of these psalms written by David. Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses. So you're looking at three or four centuries before David. And then there's some of these psalms, like Psalm 126, Psalm 127, that seem more at home in the exilic period or the post-exile period, you know, when the Jews were exiled to Babylon or to Assyria, or the post-exile when they had come back to their land. So there's some of those, and that would have been around the 6th century B.C. or after. So you can see the wide range of timing for the Psalms to be be written and now to be compiled together. Uh, The book of Psalms could be compared to a literary sanctuary. And don't you feel that way? When you open the book of Psalms and you begin reading in the book of Psalms, it's like you enter into a sanctuary. Do you find a sanctuary to be comforting? We don't refer to this building as a sanctuary. This, this is simply a meeting room. It's an auditorium. Uh, you can bring coffee in here if you need to do that. Or you can, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, when I think of a sanctuary, I think of some place that's holy, 
Sometimes at the hospitals, I like to go in the chapel. There's nobody else in there normally. Just go in the chapel and sit down sometimes. It's sort of like a sanctuary. It's like getting away from everything for a little while. Any of y'all like that, or is it just me? Okay. Yeah, I sort of like to do that. Well, when you come to the book of Psalms, it's, it's like going into a sanctuary where it's quiet and it's peaceful and it's you know something where you, you sense the presence of God and you know that you're in uh, the presence of God. Psalm 1 functions as a gatekeeper to the Psalms, and it requires the readers to identify either as those who are blessed, righteous, or it rejects those who are wicked. We're going to study Psalm 1. We're not going to tonight, but we're going to study Psalm 1. Uh, can, can you quote Psalm 1? Uh, um, that'll be something you want to learn. Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night, and it just goes on. I'm going to stop right there. It just goes on. It's the entryway into this sanctuary. This is where you go into the sanctuary. Uh, and you find in this sanctuary the, the comfort and the presence and the peace uh, of, of God. Uh, in the second psalm, you're met with the majestic picture of God, who, who is the anointed one. And consequently, once you've gone through, am I the righteous or the wicked? You go through the doorway, and you're immediately met in Psalm 2 by the presence of God. And that's why I refer to it, and I'm going to be referring to it, as a sanctuary that we enter into. The first part of the book majors on laments. You know what I mean by laments? The last part of the book focuses on hymns, hymns of praise. And so you, you begin with some sorrow, but it ends up with the songs of praise. And that's the way life is, isn't it, many times? There's sorrows that we pass through, but we end up coming to a place of praise uh, to God. Now, while the book of Psalms is composed of 150 different songs, they fall into distinct categories. Did you know that? I think you probably did. There are three major, and then there's some minor categories. There's three major categories. There are hymns, there's laments, and there's uh, thanksgiving psalms. The hymns are songs of joy. The lament is a, is a prayer. It's a fitting prayer when, when your life is falling apart. And then the thanksgiving psalms, uh, psalms are, are sung when God hears our lament and God comes and God answers our prayers. The four minor categories of psalms are psalms of confidence, psalms of wisdom, the royal psalms that, that deal uh, with uh, prophecies about Christ, the royal psalms, and the remembrance psalms. And uh, they are fascinating as you begin to categorize them and put them together. The poetry of the psalms is also notable for its use of vivid imagery. Uh, you read things uh, in it that you know, make, make it stand out. You can, you can picture it in your mind. You know, one of the things we're losing today uh, is the ability to, to see in our minds, use our imagination. Um, we, we're so uh, focused on a television, somebody else doing that imaginary thinking for us that we can't imagine seeing sometimes in our own minds. But when you go into the book of Psalms, you got all of this vivid imagery that's presented to you, metaphors and similes and, and so forth that are to stimulate the imagination of the readers. 
These images of God and his relationship to his people are particularly compelling. I mean, think about it. God is a shepherd of his sheep, right? Psalm 23. I mean, what a vivid picture that is. Or a king that's praised by his subjects in Psalm 47. Or a warrior who rescues his people in Psalm verse 7. Or a mother of his people who are likened to a weaned child in Psalm 131. And so you get all of this imagery that's drawn for you from the book of Psalms. It's so, uh, so much fun if you let your mind picture what it is that the psalmist is writing down. They didn't have Game Boys and they didn't have... Uh, uh, televisions and they didn't have computers and they didn't have cell phones and but you you can you can picture what they're saying because they write with this kind of vivid uh, language. A few of the psalms are written in what's called an acrostic structure. We were talking about Psalm 119. That's one of the acrostic psalms. 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet and every verse starts with the next. I should say uh, the first section of verses of the first letter of the alphabet. Second section. Uh, the second letter of the alphabet, the third, fourth, and fifth. And each verse within each section starts with that letter of the alphabet. It's an acrostic psalm. Why, why would you think you'd have to have or you'd want to have an acrostic psalm? For the same reason you want to sing some psalms, which is what? You want to remember it, right? You want to memorize it. You want to be able to commit it to your, to, to your, to your mind so that you don't forget it. And so uh, a lot of the psalms, or some of the psalms, not a lot of them, but some of the psalms are written in that acrostic structure. We learn a lot about the nature of God and our relationship with him from this book. A lot of pictures that are given to us about who God is. Uh, almost every psalm contains at least, at least one striking image of God. At least one image. The book is a verbal portrait gallery of God and should be studied to learn more about him. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that we love studying the Psalms. We love reading the Psalms. We love memorizing the Psalms um, because when we read the Psalms, we get pictures of who God is. And just seeing God for who he is brings to us comfort uh, and peace. Besides revealing God and anticipating Jesus, the Psalms also help us express our hearts to God in prayer, don't they? No matter what you're feeling inside, whether it's love or it's hate or it's anger or it's joy, depression or envy or generosity or any of these other emotions that we might feel, you can almost inevitably find a Psalm where the psalmist expresses all of that or some of that emotion, right? Um, and so you find that kind of emotion, and that's really comforting to me because sometimes um, I, I, I feel like I need to say something to God, but I'm afraid to say it. I fear God. I have a holy reverence for who he is, but, you know, God's bigger than whatever I got to say, and he can handle it. I've stood beside families at the darkest moment of life, and, uh, you know, they're going through the depths of grief, and you say to them, you, you tell God, whatever's on your heart, God can handle it. And you find the psalmist saying some of those very kinds of things. You know, God, where are you sometimes? Lord, where are you? Have you ever felt like asking God that? Well, maybe if you don't feel like asking it yourself, you go find the psalm, the psalm that says that. Matter of fact, there's more than one that says that. And you pray that psalm. You make that psalm your own psalm, and you pray it out to, to God. Um, 
A quick survey of the Psalms will reveal that many of the imperatives of the Psalms concern worship. That's what we're going to see tonight in Psalm 100. Many of the Psalms that are there, the imperatives that are there, they concern worship. Because ultimately the Psalms are to turn our hearts away from our problems and away from our struggles and to turn our hearts to the one true God. And where else do you want to turn when your heart is aching, when your life is falling apart, or when you need comfort or guidance or just the sense of his presence? You turn to God, and and God is there to to, to meet you. Um, Sometimes Christ is anticipated in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 23 is a classic example uh, where it's clear that the psalmist is speaking beyond himself in what he's experiencing. He's speaking about something that's clearly prophetic, and you find that Jesus will pick up some of those uh, images, some of those uh, verses uh, from the Psalms, and uh, he will quote them about himself because they were intended to be prophetic. Uh, So, you know, they're going through, the psalmist is going through something, and he's saying something, but the meaning of the psalm goes way beyond what the psalmist is experiencing in that given moment. While the Psalms were written by an author inspired by his, or, uh, by his own experience of God's presence or the feeling of his absence in a particular event, they were written in such a way that others who use the Psalm as a model prayer can apply it to their own similar situation. And that's why we love the Psalms. Because when we go to the Psalms, we can sing them, we can pray them, we can chant them. And we sense it's as if we're praying the psalm as the psalmist originally prayed uh, the psalm. When we have difficulty articulating our feelings, uh, the psalms help us find words to express ourselves to God and to do so honestly. We can tell God everything that's on our heart, even our anger and disappointment in him. Fundamentally, and I'm about to get to Psalm 100, fundamentally, The Psalms provide a tutorial on how we should pray to God. Fundamentally, the Psalms provide a tutorial on how we should pray to God. Um, We should also not lose sight of the fact that the Psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament people of God. And they were sung uh, corporately. They were written to be sung corporately. Uh, So they would have learned that song that Nathan just sang where he took Psalm 100 and they put it to words. They would have learned that song so that all of them could sing that psalm uh, together. So that's a little bit of a background of the book of Psalms, just a quick overview. Uh, We obviously can't cover 150 uh, chapters of the book of Psalms, but we're, we're going to be studying in the book of Psalms here for these next 12 weeks. In Psalm 100... I want you to follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 5. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gate with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Uh, This is the only psalm that bears this exact description. Right before the psalm begins, it's called a psalm of thanksgiving. 
as the worshipers were coming to bring their thank offerings, that is the peace offering of Leviticus chapter 7, as they were bringing their thanks offerings, they would come singing this song, whether they were coming to the tabernacle or whether they were coming to the temple, they would come singing this song as they were singing because it is a psalm of worship. We're going to talk about worship. Uh, We're going to talk more about worship in just a moment. We're going to talk about about worship. And here's what's interesting. Uh, The Psalms that are right before it, Psalm 95 to Psalm 99, are called the enthronement Psalms. The enthronement Psalms. You go back and read those Psalms, 95 to 99. You go back and read them, and God's being enthroned. God's being seen in the place of his great sovereignty and his great power. God is being enthroned. And then you come to Psalm 100, and what happens when you see God? You break out into worship of the one true God. And so that's what's going on here in this particular psalm, Psalm 100. A.W. Tozer said, Worship acceptable to God is the missing crown jewel in evangelical Christianity. Let me read it to you again. A.W. Tozer, who's been dead for many years now, said, worship acceptable to God is the missing crown jewel in evangelical Christianity. Now, let me tell you what I think he means by that. I think he means by that that Christianity has been turned on its head. It's now about all about what God does for us rather than about us coming to see God for who he is and us saying, Lord, what can we do for you? How can we serve you? It's all about, Lord, you're going to give me this and do this for me and feel this way for me and make me feel this way, rather than us coming and saying, I'm in the presence of the Almighty. It's a consumer mentality. You know, what does that church have to offer me that the other church doesn't have to offer me? And if they can't offer me as much as that other church, then I'll change churches so that I can get what I want. It's like having you know, multiple uh, kinds of stores to shop at. That's what churches have become, multiple kinds of stores to shop at. And who's got the best price? Who's got the best product? Who, who can put on the de- best production? All of those kinds of things. The reality is that we ought to be coming and gathering with the people of God on the Lord's Day because we want to see the Lord high lifted up. We want to see him glorified and honored. We want to see his son, uh, the one who gave his life for us. And we want to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've come to listen to you. I've come to hear from you. I've come to worship you. I've come to bow in your presence. So somebody misses a note. Nobody missed a note, by the way. (laughs) But so somebody misses a note. That's not what's most important. If they were singing from the depths of their heart, they were singing with all of their being to the God of heaven. But too often it's more like a performance. And we're waiting for what comes at the end. I love the applause. You're going to see that in a moment, that applause, uh, and applause is not unbiblical. You're going to see that in a moment. That is if I get to it. Um, It's not unbiblical. But too often it turns the church service into a performance. Are we performing well enough for the people? I mean, after all, we have Siri, Sirius XM radio, and we have all the channels. We can scan up and down on the FM and on the AM. Of course, most of the AM are just talk radio. Why does anybody want to listen to talk radio? That's my phone saying it just went on to, you, you'll need to turn off airplane mode. It's, it's always put on 
Why is it saying that to me? It's never done that before. Lord, are you saying something to me? <laughs> Am I about to go to heaven? Is the chariot about to sweep down? You know what I'm saying? Um, now I have no idea what I was saying. What was I saying? A what? Oh, applause. I thought you said about a fog. <clears throat> That's what my group's called a fog. You know, it's because my mind is that way. About applause. And I'm, we're not opposed to that. We, I love doing that. I think it's an appropriate thing to do it, uh, it, when, it's, when it comes from the right spirit, from the right heart. Worship acceptable to God, he says, is the missing crown jewel in everlasting Christianity. So let me just ask you a question. If we turned off all the lights, we shut down the air conditioning and the heating, we didn't have any fancy music, we didn't have any instrumentation, uh, all you had was to come and hear somebody read the Word of God, nothing else provided, and to meet with God, would you come? Well, you're, you're unique. You understand that. You are unique. Because most people would not come if they didn't have a show to entertain them. Because God is not sufficient uh, too often in our lives. And so Psalm 100 comes and tells us and teaches us about the matter of worship. Worship that's acceptable to God. First of all, if you're making notes, I want you to know that worship is imperative. Worship is imperative. There are five Hebrew imperatives in this passage. P please pick them up. Verse 1, make a joyful shout. That's, a, that's an imperative. Verse 2, serve. That's an imperative. The Lord with gladness. Here's the third imperative. Come before his presence with singing. Number 4, know that the Lord, he is God. That's the fourth imperative. And the fifth one is down in verse 5. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Five imperatives. So let me ask you a question. Is worship supposed to be optional? Worship is supposed to be a matter of obedience. It's supposed to be a matter of us approaching God because we know who he is and we, uh, he is deserving of the worship that we give to him. You find that when we studied the Revelation. You remember when we studied the Revelation? And uh, when they see him, the angelic host singing, holy, 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 and what do the 24 elders do? They fall down before him. They cast their crowns at his feet. And there's a, there's a worship that's going on. Why? Because he alone is worthy. He alone is deserving. No one else is worthy. Nobody else was worthy to open the scroll, if you remember. Nobody else was worthy to open the scroll. Only he is worthy. And worship is something that God commands of his children. We should worship God, not because of uh, we want him to be performing for us and we can give him a hand of applause, but because of who he is, we should worship him. We should worship him. When the judge walks into the courtroom, what does everybody do? They stand. All rise. You know the song? All rise. Everybody stands. You know, if our king, our judge walked in this room, I don't think we'd stand. I think we'd fall on our faces before God. And worship is something that God commands us. Do you remember the story in John chapter 4 about the woman at the well? And um, 
you know, Jesus is at the well. The disciples go into town to, to buy food. And while Jesus is out there in the heat of the day, uh, the woman comes out. J Jesus enters into a conversation. All of, that is, all, all of that is unheard of in his day. He begins having a conversation with this woman at the well. You know, go, go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. And then they get into the discussion about worship. And, well, she says, well, our fathers say worship on this mountain. Your fathers say worship on that mountain. And Jesus said, God's seeking those that will worship him. He's seeking those who will worship him. How? In spirit and in truth. He is seeking such to worship him. You know what that means? That means there's a lot of people who aren't seeking to worship that way. He is seeking those who worship in spirit from the depths, the core of their being, and in truth. It's not merely going through the motions. The spirit can be a capital S by the Holy Spirit, or it can be our inner spirit. <laughs> it's all the same in the sense that the Holy Spirit moves us inwardly to, to want to worship God from the depths of our heart, according to the truth. You can't worship a false god. Well, you can, but it's, it's not appropriate. It's not right. Y'all with me? Stay with me. It's worship. Worship is imperative. God didn't ask us if we wanted to worship him. He said we are to worship him. We're to make a joyful shout, serve the Lord, come before his presence, know that he's the Lord, enter into his gates, come worship. I'm seeking such to worship me, and he is deserving of that worship. Second of all, I want you to notice that worship is comprehensive. You notice verse 1, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Do you know what we're doing by way of our missionaries, some 90 or so missionaries that we partner with around the world, many of them out of our own church? Do you know what we're doing? We're turning people into worshipers. That's what we're doing. We're winning them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them all the things that Jesus commanded us, and helping them to see who God is so that they can begin to worship God as we worship God, and they can begin to glorify God. Is he deserving of that? Is he worthy of that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if worship isn't the priority of your life, everything else will be out of place in your life. Are you still with me? He says, all you lands. And so ultimately, while we're carrying the gospel, we're sending missionaries, we're planting churches, uh, you know, you're winning people to Christ, you're discipling them in the faith, you're teaching the Word of God, teaching them the things that Jesus commanded us to do, you're sending them back out to do the same and repeat the process over and over and over. Ultimately, what you're doing is turning people into worshipers of the one true God. Worship is imperative. Secondly, worship is comprehensive. Thirdly, worship is active. Worship is active. You'll notice verse 2, serve. That's an imperative. Serve the Lord with gladness. Um, sometimes we think of worship as just sitting in a pew soaking up things. But worship is active. It is, there, we're going to talk about it in a moment, it, there are contemplative moments to it. Uh, but worship is also a matter of us putting our hands to the plow and going to work and doing it for the glory of God. Putting our hands to the plow and saying, Lord, I'm serving you. You might be holding a baby in your arms in the nursery, but you're doing it for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, you, you might be uh, uh, greeting people out in the parking lot, and, you know, putting on a smile. 
Uh, maybe, maybe you have to paint on your smile. But you're putting on, you're putting on a smile. And you're welcoming people. That's worship if it's done from the depths of your heart because you know that every person is valuable and precious to the one who created life in the beginning. Or uh, maybe you're just picking up trash. You know, I go around here and find things that need to be picked up sometimes, and I just pick it up. Sometimes I just call somebody and say, you pick it up. <laughs> That's sort of the privilege of being a pastor, but sometimes I just pick it up myself. You just pick it up, throw it away. Why? You know why? I, I, well, I don't want to get into that. We do that because we want to worship God. God is holy. God is righteous. God deserves the very best we can give him. You know, we read the story of Mary and Martha when Jesus was coming to Bethany and going to be at their house and was going to eat with them. And, and, you know, they were rattling pans and they were working hard. And finally Jesus gets there and Mary says, I'm leaving the kitchen. I'm going in here uh, to sit at the feet of Jesus. Now, that was the right thing to do at that moment. That was the right thing to do at that moment. But let's be careful about taking the story too far because there are those moments when the right way to worship God is by getting busy. Actually, I tell you that every person in our church should have some task that they're involved in, they're helping in, they're serving in. Everybody should have some role, some responsibility. If it's little more than, if it's nothing more than standing and holding open a door, Everybody should have a task because part of worship is active. It's serving, it's serving, it's serving. Sometimes it's banging the pots and pans in the kitchen and getting things ready. Aren't we thankful for Vida who worships the Lord by cooking us meals? Aren't we grateful? Now Mandy works with her. Mandy Smith works with her and she's trained Mandy. I don't know, maybe you've trained her. I think you've trained her. You've trained me how to eat. I know that. <laughs> Worship is active. Service is one very legitimate way to worship the Lord. I, I want to tell you that when I preach on Sundays, it's worship. Um, not just because you've got to hear it, but because I come. You, you realize, I know it's summertime. I got, we got people in and out. There are going to be people gone. There are going to be Sundays like this morning when a whole bunch of people are all gone at the same time. It's like they call each other and say, let's all leave on this Sunday. But guess what? I prepare the same kinds of messages with the same effort and the same intensity, whether anybody's here or whether everybody is here, because the King of kings and the Lord of lords deserves the best I can give him. Now, maybe you can give him more, but he deserves the best I can give him. Worship is active. Third, or fourthly, worship is responsive. Worship is responsive. Look back at verse 1. He says, make a joyful shout to the whom? To the Lord. Or is it to who? Who or whom? Some English teacher tell me. Who? Whom? The Lord. That's who it is. Make a joyful shout uh, to the Lord. Look down at verse 3. Know that the Lord, and here we come with the third term, he is God. You see it? Verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. He's creator. He's Lord. He's God. He's creator. Can we just stop here for a moment? Yeah, you're looking at a preacher who still believes that God created in six literal days everything that there is and rested on the seventh day. Theistic evolution has become a very popular kind of idea, especially amongst the intellectual community, so that tells you where I am. 
I'm non-intellectual. Um, uh, because they want to they they, they make compatible science, su- supposed science, which isn't science at all in the sense of creation. You can't go back. You can't view it. You can't test it. You can't repeat what happened in the beginning, right? They, they can't redo it. Um, and the, 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 the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they, they want to be able to bring the two and mesh the two together and make them fit with one another. Because I think that makes Christianity less offensive to those who are in the science community. I suggest to you that you've got a problem no matter what you do. Because if you believe in a resurrected Savior, you don't have any problem believing in a God who can create in six literal days. You, you got that right? I mean, if you believe in a Savior who can take the sins of all the world and the penalty of that sin all on himself and pay it all in full, you got no problem. You got no problem believing in a creator who can create in six literal days. Whether you understand it all or not, whether I can understand it all or not, doesn't matter. And, and what do you do? I, I've been reading, you know, over the last, how many months? Four, four, wow, that was quick. You know what that means, don't you? She knows four months because she says, this is going to end soon. You're going to have to get up and go back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. Am I doing that, aren't I? I am. See, I got permission. I got, I'm doing it. Um, I've been reading a lot during that four months. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Do you realize how much of the scripture you just have to cut out if you, if you decide you're not going to believe in creation anymore? You just have to cut a whole bunch of it out. Hey, see if I can find it here for you. Are you all still with me? Uh, Exodus chapter 20 is where you find one of the giving of the, one giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. and In it you shall work, do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gate for in six days. Now, this is written in the law that was chiseled on the stone. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. In six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Or take the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, and they're asking him about divorce and, you know, what's allowable? When is divorce allowable? And Jesus says, haven't you read from the beginning that God made them? What? They weren't some kind of humanoid before, and God decided after a while, you know, I'm going to take one of those and make them into a, you know, we're going to turn them into an intelligent creature. Well, I'm getting a little sound a little bit sarcastic. I don't want to do that. I, I just want to help you to understand that he is our creator. He goes on here, verse 3, know that the, that, that the Lord, he is God, is he who's made us and not we ourselves. We are his people. He owns us. He paid for us with a price. The price of his own soul. He owns his own life. He owns us. Uh, It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people. I love this picture. And the sheep of his pasture. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. 
He restores my soul. He goes on and on. Isn't that a beautiful psalm, Psalm 23? He is my shepherd. And so worship is responsive. Number five, and I'm going to move quickly. Worship is expressive. You're going to be thankful I move quickly on these. Worship is expressive. Notice verse one again. Make a joyful what? What? Oh, no. We've got to be quiet. We've got to be the chosen frozen. We've got to be, you know, don't, don't speak too loudly in the presence of God. Oh, listen, you're not, you, you can't shout loud enough to hurt the ears of God. Sometimes it's a good place for a shout, you know. Now, we're a pretty calm church. Uh, we, we got a, a man that comes every once in a while, a good man, love, loves the Lord, knows Christ. But he, he thinks we're the deadest church on, on, the, on, the, on the block. Because, we, we, you know, we don't, we don't throw our hands in the air, and we don't have people shouting, amen, amen, you know, shouting amen, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You know, we don't have all that going on all the time. I'd like to have a little more of that. You know, a sort, a thank you, thank you, thank you. It, it's sort of like sickum, sickum uh, dog, it's a sickum preacher. Every time you do that kind of thing, it's sort of like you're you're right on it, preacher. Go for it, go for it. It makes you want to get down in the trench and just keep. You know, I'm, I'm off track here. <laughs> he says we're not we're not exciting enough. It's just too boring. You know, I love your preaching. He says, well, thank you. That, that makes it all worthwhile. Would y'all, and I, you know, I just I feel like saying to him something. Just leave us alone. Just go somewhere else and pick on somebody else. This is who we are. I'm a quiet, reserved. I'm not a handsy kind of a, you know, I'm not the Mufasa kind of thing. I, I don't have any. I, that's just not me. That, that's not me. I grew up in a very formal church. Everybody wore robes. Everybody went through anthems. You went through certain, you know, rituals. That's how I grew up, and I just, mother said, put your hands in your pocket. Don't take your hands out of your pocket. I don't take my hands out of my pocket. I still put my hands in my pocket. But you realize that there's a time for shouting? There's sometimes just a time to say, amen, praise God, hallelujah. You know, there's moments to say that, right? There's singing. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence, What? With singing, with singing. You say, well, I'd like to do away with the singing. Hey, that's part of worship. It's not all. Some people say, this, this bugs me. It bugs all of our staff members. It bugs all of us. Hey, I'm overtime, so just hang on with me here. <laughs> I did the prep thing. It'll take you into Psalms. Uh, but it bugs all the staff. We say, well, the, the worship part has finished. Now it's time for the preaching. As if the worship is only the singing and the preaching is something other than worship. I got news for you. The singing is worship. The preaching is worship. The praying is worship. The serving is worship. All of it is worship. Every part of it's worship. There's singing. There's clapping. Psalm 47, verse 1. This is not in Psalm 100. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Let's just do that. Yeah, praise the Lord. Oh, I don't think we ought to ever clap our hands. I don't think we ought to do it as an audience giving approval, just giving approval to somebody who just did a stunning uh, musical number or a stunning sermon. That'd be good. That'd be a good place to, hey, there's clapping. 
There's praising. Psalm 63, verse 4. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift my hands in your name. Would you just lift your hands with me for a minute? I've been trying to get the praise team to help us do that. Just every once in a while, just say, let's all lift our hands and sing this next verse together. If you just ask me to do that, I'll do that with you. Amen? Amen. It's okay. Now put them down, put them down. That's enough, that's enough. (laughs) There's bowing. By the way, this matter of praising, Charles Spurgeon once said, wash your face every morning in a bath of praise. Blanche is going to take a little bit more than one wash. Is Blanche here? Oh, oh, Blanche knows that. She can't hear me anyway. Oh, (laughs) wash your face. The 701. Now, y'all got to let me finish. Blanche, stop talking. Wash your face every morning in a bath of praise, he said. You know what praising is? It's just putting on a grateful heart and saying, God, thank you. Thank you. And there's bowing. Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So the psalm uses the following words to speak of the exuberant heart of the worshiper. Joyful, you'll find all these words in Psalm 100. Joyful, gladness, singing, thanksgiving, praise, thankful, bless, all of that. Worship is expressive. Number six, worship is contemplative. I'm not going to spend much time here. There's times when you just sit and you think and you meditate and you ponder. And number seven, worship. Finally, worship is transformative. You become like the one you worship. Are you with me? Worship is transformative. (laughs) You become like the one you worship. Ralph Waldo Emerson hit the nail on the head when he said this. The gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And a man will worship something. Have no doubt about that either. He may think that his tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of his heart, but it will come out. That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, he says... It behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Wow. I love baseball. But if you worship baseball, mm, you might not end up like Christ. I love golf. I love golf. I've loved, you know, I love golf my whole life. From the sixth grade forward, when I first picked it up, my uncle put a golf club in my hand and said, let's go for it, David, or I'm going to show you how to play the game. My daddy had no idea how to swing a golf club. My daddy, we went to the driving range. My daddy got a golf club in his hand. My mother, myself, were you with us? I don't think you were with us. Just my mother and my daddy. And he started swinging the golf club, and we laughed so hard. Daddy, you just stay a businessman. That's what you need to be. You need to be a businessman. Uh, you know, you know I, I, I have been in times in my own life where my, my whole focus, my whole life centered not around God as much as around golf. They both started with G. I thought it was okay. <laughs> you can't worship anything other than God because you're becoming like the thing you worship. Psalm 100, 
is this incredible song of praise that as the worshipers were coming up to Jerusalem, going up in elevation, uh, singing this psalm out loud, maybe they were chanting it, Maybe they had music behind it, and it was all syncopated. By the way, you find those little phrases, selah, selah, selah. Sometimes in the, the, the inscriptions above the psalm, you'll find a note to the musician. We, we think that selah was like a rest in a music. And, you know, when you're playing music, it's like a rest where you pause for a moment, and you think about what you've just, what you've just been reading or what you've just been saying. They came up to Jerusalem for the thanks offering. And they came up singing, Lord, you are worthy, blessed. Lord, bless your name. You are worthy of of worship. You are worthy of worship. And they were singing, and they were clapping, and they were bowing, and they were worshiping. And when you worship that way, it's reflected in your life.